the books of the Old Testament. And today we're studying, as you can see on my slide, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I would say this is probably one of the most misunderstood books in the entire Bible. And you know what I mean? If you've tried to read through the book of Ecclesiastes, a lot of you might think as you read through it, it seems like everything in Ecclesiastes is at odds with the rest of Scripture. In preparing for this lesson over the last couple of weeks, I've talked to a handful of believers about Ecclesiastes, and let me just say their comments were, I would say, interesting. A lot of different interpretations on Ecclesiastes. I also, in my preparation, I wanted to learn what the atheists think about Ecclesiastes, so I went to a couple of blog posts, and I wanted to read, what because they're drawn to the philosophy in Ecclesiastes. One of them commented that it's a complete, a complete contradiction within itself. Another atheist, I'll read his comment, he said this, the author's attitude in Ecclesiastes towards God is one of tired acquiescence. The God of Ecclesiastes is not so much a deity to be loved, but more of a remote and uncaring cosmic ruler. He's given you a pointless life bound to end in death, but hey, what's there to be done about it? He's God and you can't stop him from messing you over anyway. Better make the best of your short, empty existence while it even lasts. And then he quotes a passage from Ecclesiastes as if to prove his point. And I get it. I get it that a lot of Christians have a hard time understanding the main theme. I get it that the atheists don't really understand Ecclesiastes. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of reading, a lot of study, more prayer and more study to really understand it. But as I hope you'll see today, and this is a spoiler alert, that the book of Ecclesiastes is not at odds with the rest of Scripture. My prayer as I've prepared this lesson over the last couple of weeks has been that God would help me prepare this lesson in a way that would help us understand Ecclesiastes better and that we would be able to help others understand what it is too, believers and non-believers. So before I go on any further, let's go to the one who inspired this book. Let's ask him to bless our time here together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I've prayed to you so often that you would uh, help me prepare this lesson, and now I pray, Lord, that you would empower this lesson, because I'm not worthy to teach your word, but your word, you promise, will go out uh, and not return void to you, that it will accomplish what you intend for it to. And my earnest prayer, Lord, is that you would um, help us to listen and understand, but not just to understand, but to move and to be able to teach others these lessons, that we would see you more clearly, worship you more fully, uh, not just in Ecclesiastes, but in all the books of the Bible, and, in, and as we worship later today. So I ask you to bless our time here in Sunday school and in worship later. In Christ's name I pray these things, amen. So one of the things that we as teachers enjoy about Sunday school series like this, where we're breaking down the books of the Old Testament, is, is uncovering their main themes and then showing how every one of these books aligns with other books, including the books of the New Testament. It's really exciting when we think that there is a, a contradiction in Scripture, but if we really do our homework, we find out that we just really didn't understand what it was saying, and that in the end, Scripture is in complete unity with itself. That is exciting for me, and so that's what I hope we communicate. And along the way, I hope you share in our amazement at how this unity of thought that we find throughout the Bible ultimately demonstrates a common author, a common ultimate author. So I hope you see once again today that it's the one true God who inspired and preserved every single one of these books of the Old Testament, including Ecclesiastes. So here's my outline for this morning. 
I don't know why we're having some audio-visual difficulties. It seems like this always happens. Oh, well. First, I'm going to talk about where we are in our survey of the Old Testament, what genre we're in, and then where we're headed next. After that, I'm going to spend a little more time trying to establish who the main character of Ecclesiastes is, maybe who the author might be, and what their roles are in this book. That's important. From there, we'll begin to examine the main themes of Ecclesiastes. And in the end, we'll try to make sense of what this book is teaching and see if the charges of the atheists are true, that the Bible is full of contradictions and that Ecclesiastes is one of those contradictions. We'll see if that's really true. So let's start with the genre and where we are in our timeline. For those of you that were here a few weeks ago when Stephen Parkin took us through the book of Job, he mentioned that we're now in the genre of wisdom literature. And as we taught through the first 10 books of the Bible, we went in order and we traced the history of mankind beginning with Adam and Eve and then down through that special lineage all the way through Noah, down through his lineage to Father Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, the father of the nation of Israel. And then from Genesis 46 on, this historical narrative traces the history of the nation of Israel and God's relationship with them until we got to the point of 2 Samuel which is where we left off from the books of history and we dove into these books of wisdom with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and today Ecclesiastes. Next week, J.D. is going to teach through the Song of Solomon, but the reason that we stopped on our tour of history is because once we get to 2 Samuel, we're introduced to King David who wrote most of the Psalms. Now we're going to go back after the Song of Solomon, we're going to go back to 1 and 2 Kings and continue with history where we're going to be introduced to Solomon who was the primary author, as Carrie told us, of most of the book of Proverbs. I'm going to argue that he may have written Ecclesiastes. If nothing else, he's at least the main character. And, of course, he wrote the Song of Solomon. So we're going to do, finish up the wisdom literature. Just so you know, we're not going in order through your Bible. It's more of a chronological because when we got to David, we, we wanted to talk about his work and Solomon's work. We're going to go back to First and Second Kings after J.D. preaches Solomon. But then we're going to dive into, just so you know where we're at, the prophets, because these kings that we'll learn about in First and Second Kings, they needed prophets to speak to them to remind them of the Word of God. So that's just a, a bookmark of where we're at and where we're going. I hope that's helpful. Having said all that, let's talk about the authorship. And let's talk about the main character of this book. If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's 20, the 20th book in, right after the book of Proverbs, right before the book of Solomon, uh, the Song of Solomon. Right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, and let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It starts with this line, and Ecclesiastes doesn't name its author, but it says this, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that's the title given by the author. Now the Hebrew word, I want to focus on uh, this word preacher here. The Hebrew word for preacher is koheleth. It means someone who's speaking or leading or teaching an assembly like we are. So the Greek word for assembly is ekklesia, which is the book's title in the Greek Septuagint, which was the Greek translation into Greek. The title in English becomes Ecclesiastes. So that's the name of the Bible, the the book here. This word koheleth or preacher is often translated in English as not just preacher. That's what my ESV Bible calls him. Uh, the, the, um, the NASB, if you're holding a King James or a New King James, yours also probably says preacher. If you're an NIV person or a New Living Translation, it says 
teacher. It doesn't matter which word your Bible uses. This preacher or teacher is said to be, in verse 1 here, the son of King David. Now, there are different views as to who this preacher or teacher may be. The vast majority of biblical scholars say it's Solomon. There are some skeptics that say it's not Solomon, but they don't have a lot of evidence for that. I would argue for sure that it is Solomon, and it may even be the unknown author here. But what I'd like to do is go through three reasons why I think that at the very least we can know that this this book of Ecclesiastes is dealing with the primary character of Solomon, maybe even the author. And if you'll give me just three or four minutes, I'm going to get a little academic, but I think you'll see why this is relevant. So I'm going to start with the first argument here. And this is something that prompted my thought when Kerry was introducing the book of Proverbs. He read from 1 Kings 4, 29 through 31, which says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. So I don't think it's a stretch to believe that one of the wisest men ever to live would have recorded this highly philosophical lecture, that's what I would call Ecclesiastes, that's filled with so much wisdom. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to assume that the same guy who wrote two other books of wisdom also wrote this book of wisdom. We know that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, like I said, in most of the book of Proverbs. And people will say, well, now, wait a second. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they communicate their truths in such different fashions. But you know what? They don't contradict each other. In fact, they both emphasize the common theme of the importance of the fear of God. Now, does this prove that the preacher is Solomon or the author? No, but it's a really good clue, I think. It's a strong evidence. Dominic, you might want to call Zach and ask him why the computer's doing this. I don't know why this happens every once in a while. But anyway, uh, secondarily, we see similarity in the way this book and the book of Proverbs open up. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is nearly identical in form and content with the way Proverbs opens up. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. They're nearly identical in form and content. Okay? Again, this doesn't prove that the preacher is Solomon or that the, they share a common author, but I think it's another good evidence. But for me, the, the third, and the, this is the Loctite reason I think this preacher is Solomon, and I think this is important, is because of what Ecclesiastes 1.12 says. If you have that open, look at Ecclesiastes 1.12. gives us a little more information. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So according to Ecclesiastes 1, the preacher was A, a son of David, B, a king in Jerusalem, and C, a king of Israel. So there's only one person that matches all three of these qualifications. If you know your Bible history, the uh, kingdom of Israel was divided in two after Solomon's reign. There was Israel and there was Judah. Israel divided in two and Solomon was the last king to rule over Israel from Jerusalem. There were 20 other kings who ruled over Israel after Solomon did so, but they did so from either Shechem or Samaria, not in Jerusalem. And none of them were descendants of David, so that disqualifies them. There were also 21 men who did rule as kings in Jerusalem, and they were descendants of David, but they ruled over Judah. So that leaves only one person, and that's Solomon, 
who matches this description. And this is relevant, again, because this preacher is the main character in the book. And everything he says here is autobiographical. This appears to be Solomon's autobiography. And his words make up nearly all of the book of Ecclesiastes. We also do hear from a second person in this book. It's the anonymous author. But we only hear his voice in about seven verses. In the opening verse, where he introduces the content, and then in the last six verses. The other 215 verses out of the 222 of Ecclesiastes are the words of this preacher who's spoken of in the third person throughout the book. So that's a little bit different. But hopefully it'll help us understand this book a little bit better. Now, let's talk about our key theme and our content a little bit. Let's hear what the preacher has to say after being introduced by this anonymous author in verse 1. If you'll look at verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 1, it says this, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Right here in verse 2, he summarizes his basic message, and he's going to repeat it. Those of you that know Ecclesiastes, he's going to say this thing over and over and over again. This is what I would call his theory, his unified field theory, if you will, of life under the sun, as he calls it. So what does he mean by this? Why does he keep saying it? If you're going to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, it's really, really important to understand what this word vanity means, because he's going to say it about 33 different times to make a point. Now, if you have an NIV, again, or a New Living Translation, you don't have the word vanity. It probably says meaningless. Regardless of which word your Bible uses, either vanity or meaningless. It's helpful to know what that word means because it's really critical, again, to help us decipher what he's saying here in Ecclesiastes. So the original word, the original Hebrew word for vanity is hebel. Hebel. Literally in Hebrew it means vapor or breath. So when you read the word vanity, think of a vapor or a puff of smoke that's here for a moment and then it disappears. The preacher uses the word vanity as a metaphor to describe how temporary and how fleeting life is, just like a a wisp of smoke. The book of Ecclesiastes poses some very big questions. If you've read it, you know. It's all these questions philosophers love. Everybody's asked these questions. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? What do we get from all of our work and toil and, and living? This preacher, this man of wisdom, wanted to find the answers to these questions. So he spends his entire life conducting experiments, experiment after experiment. We're going to go through some of these. Trying to either validate or invalidate his theory that everything is vanity, meaningless, hebel, vaporousness. But here's here's something you got to keep in mind, and I think this is critical. In every one of his, I'll call them scientific experiments, he has one consistent restriction that he applies one limitation under which all of his experiments would be conducted. He's going to look only for answers in the natural world, or as he puts it, everything under the sun. So he limits his research to what could be experienced on earth, under the sun, or sometimes as he calls it, under heaven. As if there was no God in the equation. And that's how Ecclesiastes reads. So it can sound like it's being written from a purely secular position, but it's obvious, and this is, this is kind of strange, it's enigmatic, I think this is why people don't understand it very well. <clears throat> it's obvious 
He's not an atheist. Just when you begin to think that he is, because of his endless proclamations about everything that seems to be so hopeless and so depressing, he interjects these musings about God in between his reportings of his empiric findings. But again, he purposely limited his field of research to only examine the world around him, or again, as he calls it, everything under the sun or everything under heaven. Again, as if there was no God or heaven. You could say, I would say, he's being scientific. So keep that in mind as you're reading through Ecclesiastes. Let's, let's look at some of his experiments. First, he wanted to know if he could find purpose in attaining wisdom and knowledge. So if you want to turn to chapter 1, verse 13, let's read through verse 18. Here's his results. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What's crooked can't be made straight. What's lacking can't be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great, acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So, he became obsessed with his studying and with his learning, and just like verse 16 says, his wisdom surpassed that of every king who'd ruled in Jerusalem before him. But the more he learned, it's interesting, the more he understood how much he didn't know anything. It's like when I started in pharmaceuticals, I began to understand pathophysiology, biochemistry, uh, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, dynamics, um, uh, statistical analysis of clinical data. And I remember saying to a doctor one time, the more I learn about medicine, the more I realize how much I don't know. And he said to me, and I'll never forget this, Scott, education is nothing more than an elucidation of one's own ignorance. That really stuck with me. And I think that's what Solomon found, the preacher found, that the more answers he got, the more questions he had. The more his knowledge increased, the more his sorrow, his hopelessness, his depression increased. And so he finally realized that knowledge and wisdom couldn't provide answers to all of his questions. So then he decided to examine another field, one that was more tangible and immediate. He began to seek out and research and observe pleasure and experience. So if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, here's what he says. He's, I said in my heart, he's setting up his experiment now, come, uh, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then down in verse 10 he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And so he surrounded himself, gave himself a lot of wine, tons of women, more money than you can imagine, more property, more wealth, more mansions. He tried to find the point of life in anything that seemed appealing, but all of it just appeared to be vanity, meaningless, hebel, vaporousness. None of it delivered purpose. Or satisfaction or meaning, none of it was permanent. All of it was fleeting, hebel, vaporous. So then he decides uh, he's going to compare the life of a wise man with that of a fool. See what he could learn there. If you skip down to chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we can read his concluding thoughts on that. He says, The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. 
Then I said, why have I been then so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, meaningless, hebel, vaporousness. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For this is all vanity and striving after wind. So he concluded, it doesn't matter whether you're wise or foolish in this world. Again, either way, you die. Isn't that encouraging? Again, in verse 14, he says, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. He's talking about death. Happens to both the fool and the philosopher. So he concludes, why bother? The preacher then continues his observations. This time he turns his attention to yet another field of study, his work. See if his findings were going to be any different. Again, he's testing his theory. Is everything really vanity, meaningless, hebel, vaporousness? Let's read through his conclusions about work in chapter 2. Go down to verse 18 through 23. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, meaningless, hebel, vaporous. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who's toiled in wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. He says, this is unjust. So what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, he says, his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. It's meaningless. Hebel. Vaporousness. So after all this, he thought, well, if our work is just striving and everything we gain or accomplish is ultimately handed to the next guy who follows me, after I die, then what's the point? After this experiment, he conducted another somewhat similar trial, but this time he decided to see if there could be meaning and purpose, not just in work, but in committing himself to enjoying work and doing well, to being exceedingly good at it. Once again, I won't read you the conclusions, but he found out it doesn't matter how much you loved your work or how great your accomplishments were here on earth. The results were all the same. It's all meaningless. Vapor. It's all disappearing. And he goes on to say these very famous words that you're all very familiar with. If you look to chapter 3, you probably know these. For everything there is a season, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, and so on and so forth. And, you know, people love this section. It is beautiful poetry. It's very profound Sounds so beautiful. You know, even a lot of people that don't know the Bible quote from this, because we've all heard it at numerous weddings and funerals. But I don't know. I'm going to have to listen next time I hear these words spoken at a funeral, whether the preacher brings the point home, because he's making a point here that there's an established course for everything. None of it happens by random chance apart from God's divine plan. And in the end, he says, if you look at chapter 3, verse 20, this is how he concludes all this beautiful poetry. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. That's a perfect synopsis. This little poem that we hear at weddings and funerals all the time, 
that people love so much. It's a perfect poem, but it's a perfect summary of his basic premise of life. All is vanity and all is fleeting. Again, none of it makes any difference because either way, every single person on earth passes away. Are you getting depressed yet? He goes on to spend an entire chapter. If you look at chapter 9, verse 2, he talks about this. He says, it's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, dot, dot, dot. The same event happens to all. And then he says, man doesn't know his time. Like a fish that's taken in a net, like a bird that's trapped in a snare, so are the children of man likewise snared when it suddenly falls upon them. Death, he's finding, is one of the key things that makes life vaporous and fleeting, whether you're wise, foolish, rich, poor, good, or evil. Isn't that interesting? Couldn't find meaning or purpose or answers to life's big questions in the natural world. Again, he studied wisdom, pleasure, toil, success, wealth. But after a life of endeavoring to find what I would call empiric evidence for the purpose and meaning of life under the sun, he learned that none of it provided a meaningful answer. And so in chapter 12, I want you to go to chapter 12. This is the concluding chapter, verse 8, his concluding words. Once again, here's how he ends everything. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Again, this is his constant, repetitive conclusion because everything that takes place under the sun is vaporous. It's like chasing after the wind, he says. It's a useless exercise. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. As you read through the pages of Ecclesiastes, you might get the feeling that after all these experiments as he's found evidence after evidence confirming his theory that he is wallowing. You kind of see him. You feel he's wallowing in pure hopelessness and even depression. He keeps concluding the same thing over and over again. It's all like vapor. This is what you get. Those of you that have read this book, you know when you're in the middle of Ecclesiastes, this is the feeling you get. And you begin to ask yourself, what kind of preacher is this anyway? Now, why is this in my Bible? But again, like I said earlier, this book reads like an autobiography. The preacher's looking back on his life to find something valuable to pass on. So he's written down his observations to preserve what he's learned before he dies. This man had more wisdom, more wine, more women, more wealth than most people on earth could or ever will imagine. And yet he still struggled with depression, with hopelessness. And if you go back and read through this book again, Understanding where he's getting all his data from, study parameters that he's set for understanding these things, you begin to understand why he's saying what he's saying. He's simply giving an unbiased assessment, this is really important, of the natural world. Even though he's conducting his experiments as if he were an atheist, it doesn't really matter. His conclusions are the same. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer or a non-believer. And it's clear, I'm going to stop here and say, it is clear that he is a believer. This is perplexing as you read this. It doesn't make sense. But 35 times, if you go back, I went through this. I said, how many times does this guy delivering this depressing message talk about God? 35 times. And it's obvious he believes in him and he reveres him. I want to give you just six examples. We won't go through all 35, but if you want to flip to chapter 5, I've got four there, and then we'll find one in chapter 8 and one in chapter 12. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Very reverential. 
Verse 2, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Again, very reverential. Verse 7, God is the one you should fear. Verse 19, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, this is the gift of God. Verse 8 of chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 12. Hold on. Chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. And then go to chapter 12, one more. Verse 1. He says this, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. So, my point here is, these six examples out of all 35 of them, prove that he's not an atheist, okay? The point is this, and I don't think a lot of people understand this. He's seeking after science. He's studying science. Science means knowledge, okay? The preacher is gaining knowledge from empiric tests and observations of the physical world. And his religious beliefs have nothing to do with his findings, have no bearing on his findings. Let me give you an example of why I say this. If you have a Christian and an atheist, and they're doing a scientific experiment to determine uh, the molecular makeup of um, a water molecule, for example, say they both look through an electron microscope, is one of them going to find something different than two um, hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom? No. Or let's say they want to validate the boiling point of water at sea level. Christian and an atheist, is one of them going to have a different answer than 212 degrees Fahrenheit or 100 degrees Celsius? No. They're both going to be able to find the truth about that experiment in the natural world. The religion doesn't affect their observations. That's what we call empiric science. And that's what the preacher has been doing here. But the preacher, this is very important, the preacher knows something that the atheistic, scientific naturalist does not understand. And that is that theology, the knowledge of God, the study of God, the things above heaven... Theology is known as the queen of science, at least it used to be, but it is. The preacher doesn't acknowledge this, that there's a knowledge that transcends the natural world. Atheist doesn't know this. Ironically, atheism is a very unscientific perspective because it excludes even the possibility of an invisible supernatural world. But the preacher knows the truth. And that's why in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And it seems so enigmatic because his final words in verse 8 are, again, vanity of vanities, all this vanity. It seems so contradictory. And this is why atheists say, Ecclesiastes contradicts itself. But his observations, the preacher's observations, are true. We all know this. In the, in the, in the world below the sun, it is all vanity. But we also know, as the preacher knows, that there's another source of wisdom and knowledge above the sun above heaven, in the Creator. And so now, if you look at the last six verses of Ecclesiastes, we get to hear this anonymous author's epilogue, his concluding comments on everything the preacher has just said. Let's look at verse 9 of chapter 12. This anonymous author tells us that in addition to being wise and teaching the people knowledge, the preacher also, quote, arranged many proverbs with great care. Another hint. Who do you think that sounds like? That's Solomon. The author tells us also that the preacher's words are truth, and he likens them to a shepherd's goad. If you know what a goad is, it's a long staff with a pointy end. When you get poked or prodded by it, it moves you in a different direction. So he says his words are like a goad. 
And then the author warns us that you can try to gain wisdom and understanding beyond these words given by the one true shepherd, and by that one true shepherd he's talking about God. You can spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer all the world's big questions about life just like the preacher did, but where does that leave you? Look at the final two verses, verses 13 and 14. The author now gives his conclusion to everything the preacher has said. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God and obey his commandments. A lot of people overlook those final concluding verses when you ask them about Ecclesiastes, but that is the message of Ecclesiastes. True knowledge and true wisdom, it turns out, are found in him alone, in his word alone. It's about the object in which we place our trust. If we place our trust, and we all know this, if we place our trust in the world's wisdom and knowledge, we end up in the same place the preacher found himself. That's why he was so depressed and so hopeless all the time. This is what happens in this false belief system. Some of you have heard of Gnosticism. It's based on the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, that you can become more godlike and save yourself through knowledge and wisdom. Again, the preacher saying that kind of wisdom, the world's wisdom, won't get you anywhere. So let's put this into context with the rest of the Bible. Let's bring it home and talk about scriptural unity here. I want to quote a few selected scriptures. If you want to turn to Job 28, you can do this. Job 28, verse 12 is where I'm going to start. The author says, Job 28, verse 12, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its worth. It's not found in the land of living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. Verse 20, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living. Verse 23, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And then verse 28, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So this is where wisdom and understanding can be found. They're found in the fear of God and turning away from evil. So any philosopher that's here or listening on YouTube later, any atheist that might be listening to this, are you listening to this? It sounds a lot like the closing lines of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord and turning away from evil, these are things we cannot know apart from the Word of God. This is why, importantly, Romans 1 says that we can know of God by looking around at everything that He's made under the sun. But this is what we call general revelation because it's made generally available to everybody. Anybody can know that there's one God. That's what Romans 1 said. James 2.19 says, Even the demons believe, and they shudder in fear. But their fear is not a reverent, awestruck fear that compels them to worship Him and to obey His commandments. So, Even the knowledge that there's only one God doesn't save you. So you see the lessons from Ecclesiastes echoed even in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3.7 says, If we try to derive answers to the questions of life apart from a personal relationship with God, 
It's like ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul, in his second chapter of his letter to the Colossians, says it's his desire for believers to, quote, reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you believe there's only one God, good for you. That's a really good start. But all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So the only knowledge that can transcend the vanity of the world is the knowledge that the God who is above the Son entered our realm in the reality of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one that removed the restriction that the preacher applied to his experiments. Again, the preacher found that from a perspective of pure scientific naturalism, our questions about the meaning of life are unanswerable. But Jesus taught us through his death, through his resurrection from the dead, that he is the answer and he is the truth. The preacher says that the world's knowledge is pointless. But scripture says that knowing Christ is a treasure. Preacher says everything dies, everyone dies. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says those who trust in him will have eternal life. So what is the meaning of life? Fear God and keep his commandments. And we don't do this by chasing after the wind, but by pursuing Christ. And that is ultimately the message of Ecclesiastes. I hope there's no misunderstanding. I hope you can explain this to people. But that's where we have to end our lesson. And I hope you'll come back next week because J.D. is going to continue talking about God's wisdom through the Song of Solomon. So that's it for now, and we'll see you back here for worship in a few minutes.